I tell people, like, if you're in a 50-minute class period kind of regular school schedule, fight for change to get some blocks. And if you can get over to block structure, now you've opened up just enough time for kind of loose parts experimentation. You can do some hands-on physics. You can do things that are aligned with your curriculum, but give kids a chance to do authentic experimentation. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to the July edition of Learning Unboxed. As many of you know, we tend to take the month of July off, but we have heard from our loyal listeners that you would love content during your summer vacation. So we have crafted a set of four episodes to run during the July holiday that are all about exploring student agency. For those working to make a meaningful shift in your classrooms, schools, and communities, the most crucial place to start is making the decision to shift from a teacher-led ecosystem to one that is student-led. But this shift can be daunting. So join us as we explore four examples of student-centered learning that demonstrate what's possible. So let's head to California, New York, Idaho, and Colorado to learn from educators who have embraced student agency. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed, as always. Super excited because we get to have provocative conversations with folks out in the world doing really amazing and innovative things in the world of education. And joining us today is Gaver Tooley, who founded Tinkering School in 2005, um, which was one of the earliest camp programs to focus on empowering children with tools. And we all love the idea of empowering children with tools, so we're going to have a fun conversation. And while the world was focused on those stunning images of children building amazing things, he was quietly handing over the running of the camp to the children. So <laughs> welcome to the program. And we want to hear more about that. <laughs> yeah. I'm so happy to be here on Elise and um, to talk about some of my favorite projects. I started Tinkering School in my backyard and it was an overnight camp and I was sleeping the kids in bunk beds in our downstairs bedroom. And, and, um, and I would, after the first pilot week, every summer after that, I added more weeks of camp to the point where it became untenable to run it in my backyard. And then I moved it. I started renting a little farm uh, a, a few miles away. And what I realized was like, I don't have the stamina to run nine weeks of summer <laughs> camp at this tempo. <laughs> who has energy? Who has more energy than a 14 year old? Mm -hmm. I mean, exactly. You know, exactly. so uh, early on, um, I had chosen like the title for my role and for the other staff was collaborator. And, and I used that as a way to constantly remind myself I'm working with them to accomplish these incredible uh, build oriented tasks that we're doing. 
And as I started to reflect on that at the end of each summer, I realized like, wait, these kids are learning not just how to build, but they're actually getting to see every detail of how the camp is put together. And they keep wanting to move behind the curtain <laughs> to see how everything on the back end works. And I think it only took uh, one more summer before, yeah, they were as responsible for the planning, the, 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 the purchasing, the sort of um, staffing, all of that was being run as much by campers who were like 18 or less years old. And it's pretty normal in camps for attendees to matriculate into oh, sure. staff positions. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Right? Like, yeah, no, we see yeah. that in our programs as well. All right, but I need to go back. I need I need to go back first though, uh Gaver. So 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 why do this to begin with? Why why even start the camp? And then we'll get into what happens, you know, years later after that. But 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 why why did you decide, you know, that there was a need? And and then the other question that everybody's gonna have is and what made you qualify to do that thing, to fill that need, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That's a really good question because I have no background in education, right? I'm a, I'm a self-taught computer scientist, um, have worked in that industry up to that point for 25, 30 years, and had built a reputation as, a, as being a kind of really excellent problem solver and really enjoyed that work. But I also noticed that my friends weren't letting their children do the kinds of things that we had done as children. Exactly. We weren't allowed to build things. They're not letting their kids take things apart, right? Exactly. Exactly. And they weren't, they weren't just like sending them out the front door and saying, come back before dark. You know, they, they knew exactly where everyone was and they were making sure that this kid was checking in every 20 minutes or, you know, if they were at the park and, and, um, and I started talking to my friends about this, and they were describing our childhood as a perfect example of very bad parenting. They were looking back as, it, as if their parents had no idea what it meant to be good parents. They were saying that was the 60s, and nobody knew what good parenting looked like back then. And, and I saw it as uh, the most formative period of my life, which is childhood should be. Right. We should have transformative experiences and and um, we should we should have the kinds of adventures that stick with us, you know. Um, And I was talking to high school students at my camp who couldn't remember what they'd done last summer. You know, like they didn't have nothing differentiated, nothing Mm -hmm. stood out. Nothing stuck with them. Right, is this great, awesome memory that was incredibly powerful to me? That was life changing. That was that was all those things that we want them to to reflect on. Yeah, because adults were scripting their lives, you know, and that's what we started to believe was good parenting. Was I've got them in all the right after school programs, and I've got them booked every week of the summer in different camps, and you know, and we'd taken away we'd taken away all of the high agency free time that kids have and need and or or used to have at least we did in the 60s and so i sort of cynically no sarcastically suggested i should start an overnight camp where nervous parents drop off their kids and 
we do all those kinds of things we used to do as kids in the 60s, and we just don't tell anyone. Right. Yeah. 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 What happens at camp stays at camp, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And in the context of that, I I went to the thing that I felt most comfortable with, Mm -hmm. which was to make building something be the focus of camp. And that was a serendipitous choice. I mean, that was just my comfort zone. And I assumed that kids would come to us with a little bit of knowledge with tools. Mm-hmm. And, and that wasn't the case. Like no, by year no. three, I yeah. was realizing yeah. like, yeah. you know, putting a screw in was an unusual activity mm-hmm. for a child. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, yeah, because like, you know, in the same way of not, not going outside and playing and coming back, you know, at dinner time, right. We're not letting yeah. kids take things apart. Um, and you know, we were, we had gotten to a point where to your point, you know, because we're not letting them take them apart. We're not putting things back together. And so, yeah, we see the same thing at past that kids have no idea how to build, how to build anymore, right? right? And that curiosity piece was somehow being squashed in the name mm-hmm. of safety and a whole bunch of other things that are, you know, neither here nor there. But but the reality of it is, yes, we've, we've seen that same sort of thing, um, you know, in, in the programming with kids over the years. And so a lot of what we're also been designing and developing was, you know, how do we counter this sort of trend that we see happening? And so so you create this camp, you, you're a very brave man, right? Who says, let's drop these kids off. Let's fill my backyard. Let's fill my basement, my living room, you know, all of these pieces. Years go by and yet you come to the realization that this could be so much more something else, right? Which gets, gets us... Was- yeah. So tell us a little bit about that because I want to get into the fact and, and share with the listeners, you know, sort of a, a little bit of carrot about what's to come in the conversation is ultimately a school is born. Right. And it was truthfully, I think it had, it had started to be kind of like an idea in the back of my mind in about year five or six of the camp. And, and that was also about the time where parents were planning their summers around what week their kids were getting into camp and we were running this lottery and we had for every space we had in camp, we were getting like 10 and 20 waitlisted students. You know, it was incredible. And, and this kind of vague notion that was coming now from talking with students on a regular basis, you know, about their experiences at school, one of the students catalyzed the whole idea of a school when she asked a very, I thought, very provocative question. And the setup for this is we were about midweek on a project with 16 kids in the woods, in this farm, building this contraption that wasn't working. It just, like, the project was not, (laughs) it was clear Friday was going to come and it still wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work, yeah. 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 And we were exhausted and we were late for dinner and she and I were making dinner and the rest of the kids were like, seriously, like heads down on the table, barely talking, waiting for food to come out of the kitchen. And she's cutting up vegetables and I'm scrambling eggs on the, on the stove. And, and, and I hear her stop chopping. And what immediately comes to me is one of those totally parental fears Oh my God, she's cut herself. Yeah, yeah. Her she fingers so are missing, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and um, she, I, I turn around, I look at her, and I say, "Is everything okay?" And she says to me, 
she says, I was just thinking. And I was like, what are you thinking about? She says, I have never worked so hard in my life. Why can't school be more like this? And she goes to one of the top academic high schools in the Bay Area. She, uh, a few years later, she graduates and she goes to MIT. And right out of MIT, she gets recruited by SpaceX. And now she's a space laser engineer, right? This, this is a young woman who is capable of very hard work and is obviously carrying a heavy academic load. And so over dinner, I asked her what she really meant about that question, because I was kind of like, it's a very unusual way she asked it and what she meant. And what it came back to was she'd never gotten to do anything so intrinsically motivated, right? And um, she, it, it was it was that very framing that got me thinking about, yeah, why why isn't our work at school coming from a desire to complete that work? And instead it's, I'm rushing to conform to someone else's goals, like an entry, an extrinsic schedule. And so that catalyzed that question. It rolled around in my head for about a year and um, came one rainy day in, in December in 2010. I, drew a diagram on a piece of butcher paper that like resonated in my mind in some way. It like clarified this idea about a school and how we might make a framework for intrinsic motivation. I, I was working with an incredible educator at the time. And 10 months later, you know, 2010 in December, 2011, September, we opened the doors of this new school. And I'll tell you right now, like, I had no idea what I was doing. Oh, well, <laughs> was, and starting so, this, most, most innovative, you know, founders of creative schools that I, and I've interviewed a lot of you, let me just say, and, and, and I'll own this because I'm one of these myself, right? You know, uh, yeah, we, we, we don't have a clue what we're doing because if you knew how hard it was going to be, we wouldn't go down that road, right? Um, exactly. But you do it anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Because you, you let the passion and the, the realization, the, the imagination of what the potential could be, what it could be like, drives you through all the paperwork and everything. And then two weeks before school starts, your new brand new staff is asking you, so like, what happens on Monday at 9 a.m.? You know, and you're like, man, I, I really like haven't had a chance to think about that. Like, <laughs> let's figure it out. <laughs> and that turned out to be a very you know, we're, we're a super flat organization and, and the collaborators and I like started to figure it out. And then my, my directive to them was embrace this notion of the collaborator role as you need more structure or details, or you need to do something a different way. I want you to figure out that with your students. And so that set a pattern for the evolution of Brightworks and it evolved very rapidly over those first three years. You know, we, we, we were able to, and I told everybody, like, this is a platform for experimentation. We need this to go from, like, hand-wavy concept with some big pedagogical goals to something that's actually reliably and sustainable, implementable. And that means that none of these things should be treated as sacred. If we have to move one of these founding concepts around, like that's not going to break my heart. Right, right. 
we're going to replace it with a better concept. So let's do it. Yeah, I loved that period of time. But it was also, as you know, those first years are just the hardest. They are very hard. Time. They're yeah. hard. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of blood, sweat and tears, heart and soul right in the midst of it. So let's just sort of set some context for folks that are listening. So San Francisco Brightworks then is the school that came out of your summer camp in your backyard tinkering with kids. And so is this a, I just want to make sure that we're, we're really clear with folks. And so is this a public school? Is it a charter school? Is it a private school? How do you how do you structure it? And then obviously because it's it's a school, it's a high school, middle school. So what's that sort of grade range that you're you're looking at uh, in terms of of how how students actually achieve within that sort of space? Right. So we're let's do the kind of simple concrete parts first. We're we opened as K through six, and as the kids aged up, so did the admissions for all those age groups. And uh, we started with 19 kids and, um, you know, one room schoolhouse in a 10,000 square foot warehouse. (laughs) And um, now we're fully K through 12 and we graduate kids into first choice colleges and, and we transcript them using the mastery transcript, which is a, which is a pretty good way of turning hands-on experience and experiential learning into something that admissions offices recognize. And understand, yeah. But our Mm -hmm. kids, yeah, exactly. Our students arrive with uh, excellent portfolios of work and amazing stories in their essays about experiences they've had at school. And um, yeah, I think the, oh, and to answer the other question, we are a nonprofit private school. Okay. So, yeah. And that's primarily because, especially right when we started, the San Francisco Unified School District was not very supportive of experimental frameworks or um, anything that sounded like a charter school. And it still is pretty reluctant to certify charter schools. But I'm happy to say that we've been the incubator for two successful charter school experiments that have been supporting project-based curriculum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, that are working now within the San Francisco school district and yeah. So you've been a catalyst for others, for good things to happen. Yeah. 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 And one of my great joys with Brightworks lasting this long, right? We, we started in 2011. So we're, what are we in our 11th, 11th going on 12th year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, um, and how many kids now from the original 19? What's the size, population size of the? Yeah, we're at 116 headed to about 124 when we fully, fully occupy our new forever mm-hmm. campus. Okay. And, you know, I picked that number. Um, I wrote this in a, in the initial sort of manifesto that I wrote mm-hmm. for starting the school. And the number I wrote was based on that um, anthropologist's work, the Dunbar number, right? Yep. Which is the number of people we can comfortably know. Right. And right. Um, and I thought, yeah, we shouldn't build a school bigger. Every child here, whether they're in kindergarten or high school, should be able to, like, halfway through the year, know everybody else. Yeah. And then the implementation of the school, the way it's laid out, 
the ages are constantly intermixing and overlapping. Like you'll mm-hmm. have high school students in the art studio with middle school, elementary or kindergartners, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and all possible combinations of that. You'll have ad hoc mentorship of older kids, helping younger kids yep. build Near things down in the shop. Is- it's the best. Yeah. 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 Oh God. It works so well. Yeah. And when you see it happening, you, you just wish that every educator in the world could see that yeah. and we could push back on this crazy thing we do where we compartmentalize kids by age. And then we create right. these right. like unhealthy social structures that are based purely around, you know, what is it? Ken Robinson calls it your date of manufacture. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. schools treat us like products with a shelf life, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, the, do the kids then move through the program just sort of based on on their readiness to move through the program, or how is it that you sort of yeah. think about that? Because that's the other piece that I know that folks are curious about as yeah. they're listening to you tell your story. <laughs> so. This mixed age thing goes all the way to the core of the experience, and it's something we talk about to parents in the admissions, and we're deliberately, we don't have grades, we we don't have classes, what we have, <laughs> we have bands, and when I coined that term, I was actually thinking of like, um, like a band of brigands, like, you know, uh, like the, um, the sort of land-based pirates, you know. And and the thing that I thought about that was, I mean, not the not so much the crime aspect, but that uh, pirate ships were very cooperative, the same like the bands of brigands. And I, I thought there was something kind of interesting about everybody in the in the pirate ship is looking at the other people in terms of what they can do, not in terms of how old they are and where they come from, but it's like very egalitarian kind of skills based, you know what do you bring to the ship kind of thing? The kids often think of it as like being in a rock band, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And um, so, yeah, they're loosely grouped by age ranges and you might spend more than a single year in a given band. And then you're sort of moving up as your challenge, as you, as you're ready for more challenge. And oftentimes during the year, a a student will move to another band or if some, if we took someone in through admissions and we've placed them in the wrong band and they're overly challenged, we'll move them. Likewise, we can move them down a little bit in terms of age. And we're, we're trying to obviously kind of tune to that for want of a better term zone of proximal development, right? Right. Right. We're trying to make sure that they're always in that, like, satisfying level of challenge so that they're coming back for more. Yeah. Yes. And not only coming back for more, but they're being intellectually challenged in a way that really sort of promotes their, their growth and acceleration along the way. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate that. Exactly. So, So talk with us a little bit about the notion of the sort of arc pedagogical framework that you utilize. It's not something that we've had the opportunity uh, to really talk about on Learning Unboxed. And so I'd really love to dig in a little bit with that. Um, Some folks are going to be familiar, but lots of folks are not. So share a little bit about your thinking there. So... As I was starting, you know, in that December to September window, um, the thing that I drew that really galvanized the idea was my first rendition of the arc. And 
the elements that really stuck with me was I, I felt there was a necessity for a framework to give students, parents, and staff kind of confidence in the shape and plan of a year. And, and that was just coming out of those conversations with, with parents that were my peers and with research that I was doing about alternative schools that had survived and thrived and alternative schools that had disappeared. And there, at the moment that I was starting to conceive this, the last Sudbury school in San Francisco had just closed. And one of the reasons that one of the people who had been there when it closed told me that it closed was the parent community in San Francisco was having very difficult time with a fully unstructured offering, you know, and I felt like, okay, if we're going to try this big idea of trusting kids in this way, we're going to emphasize the fact that it's a collaboration with, with an adult and that that person is kind of curating part of the experience for them. And then we're also going to kind of give parents a way to talk about the school because some of the Sudbury parents were telling me like they would go home at Thanksgiving and their peers would, would always start a conversation like now remind me about the crazy school your daughter goes to. It was very pejorative, very, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to make sure that parents felt confident over the long term and they had a narrative they could attach to. So I, I grabbed this idea of Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey and the narrative arc as the framework. The child is the hero of their own story, and they should be responsible for most of the narrative milestones in that story. We're plot devices in their story, right? And uh, we're on the journey with them, but we're also kind of the... D&D dungeon master, we're putting monsters in their path or, you know, or, or treasure for them to find whichever metaphor works for you. And for me, that's what kind of galvanized it. And so we, each arc has a theme and that theme is the sort of connective tissue of the experience of that arc. And we do, we used to do three arcs a year and students and staff last year at the end of the school year came forward and they were like, hey, Gaber, can we play with that knob? And I I was like, of course. Like, you know, the first year we did five, that was too many. Too many, yeah. Yeah, somehow we settled on three for a long time. And I I was excited that they had come and, like, proposed a calendar for a two-arc year. And so this year we're doing um, uh, Monsters and Machines as the as the two arcs. And those were all proposals from uh, conversations of staff and students. So that's another thing, like you can see here at Brightworks, I've handed more and more of the authorship of the school over to staff and students, which I love. I love now nobody reports to me and I have no formal (laughs) responsibilities and I run a little kind of R and D lab and, um, and I get to just be a resource to staff and student, and mm-hmm. and, and I, I I couldn't be happier. I have to say, yeah, yeah. Um, I 
I, I am a bit jealous of that. That's awesome. <laughs> but but yeah. before before we wrap up, um, I want to dig in just for a second. So since you're on a two arc sort of um, trajectory this year, so tell us what what is just the highest level. Tell us what what is monsters as an arc, and what is machines as an arc. Oh, okay. So every arc is divided into three phases. It starts with an exploration phase where we. We, we start with a big conversation in the band, students and staff working out like, what do we know about monsters and what do we want to know? And you, depending on the age group, the older you go, it's more about the psychology and monsters as metaphor. And the younger you go, students are asking questions like, do monsters wear shoes? You know, like there's like, and, and what is the definite, like, are monsters real? You know, um, so there's a, one of the bands is looking at parasites because there's a lot of like, like, like feeling when you think about getting a tick or a mosquito is sucking your blood. And and they were like, are mosquitoes monsters? You know? Yeah. So the exploration is this framework where any question can lead to a new digression. And we say all digression is good because it's, it means that we're chasing a question that's intrinsically motivated. And so when we see that, we latch onto it and we go with it, even if it takes us away from monsters and we end up in like actual biology or something, that's fine, right? Because it's that exploration that's the core of learning. And then out of that experience, the kids are starting to have like big ideas about what they're going to do during the project phase, which we call expression. And that's the other major half of the arc, which is... Um, the the period where we take we synthesize everything we've learned and we present it back as a piece of work and you know that could be something like one of the kids is already talking about making chairs that are like sitting in a monster's mouth right and so that's a very like i don't know that's a very concrete kind of physical implementation of the idea of monster there's, uh, there's already two kids that are starting to write a screenplay for a monster movie. And that their idea is like, we're going to do practical in-camera effects and we're going to try to make the best sort of live action monster movie that we can. And already they're, they're starting to decompose film and look at, you know, and these are, what would they be, equivalent fifth graders? are getting into film theory about what makes a film work. Yeah. And, and like awesome. their YouTube, yeah, it's fantastic. So anyway, that's the purpose of expression is to catalyze, catalyze those ideas. And then they propose a project to us, what we call declaration. And that's the transition from uh, exploration into expression. And then in expression, a big part of every day is given over to them in a very like high agency framework where they're focused on their project and we're just scaffolding, right? We're helping them with their focus. We're helping them with their setbacks. We're, you know, and especially students who are transferring in and they've never been in a school like this before. Their first couple of projects are so, like the landscape feels so unstable to them and they don't know what we're looking for. And they just don't believe it when we tell them, like you should propose something that you're really interested in. And if it's not related to monsters, we're still going to say yes. 
Yeah, and, they're looking and, for more structure than, than than they're used to getting, right? They they need the lines or the box. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it takes them usually two declarations before, like their third one, we're usually getting what they really care about and they're they're going to deliver on that one because they finally feel comfortable. They don't feel like somebody's looking over their shoulder judging them, you know, like, am I going to get a bad grade? Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, there's just so many different ways we could go, you know, digging into more of this conversation, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, I've got so many more questions. Um, we might have we'll to have do to part, part two. two. <laughs> yeah, we may have to do a part yeah. two. Um, uh, indeed, I have got questions for you. Um, absolutely. You know, I do want to um, to acknowledge the fact that folks... Um, you know, do listen to this program. They come to us from all over the world and they have, you know, different sets of experiences and resources and opportunities, quite frankly, available to them, you know, as it relates to sort of their role as, um, you know, um, facilitating teaching and learning. And so if if somebody were out there listening to, to you share the story and are saying, I would like to take elements of, of what I hear Gaver talking about and bring them into my own existing practice, recognizing all the constraints that I live within in a traditional setting for, for many, what piece of advice would you have for somebody that wants to sort of start <laughs> a journey? Yeah. I tell people, like, if you're in a... 50-minute class period, kind of regular school schedule. Fight for change to get some blocks. And if you can get over to block structure, now you've opened up just enough time for kind of loose parts experimentation. You can do some hands-on physics. You can do things that are aligned with your curriculum, but give kids a chance to do authentic experimentation Look for those easy, low-hanging fruit alignments, and I'd be happy to talk to them about, you know, what those have been in the past. And we do lots of ad hoc collaboration with teachers who just want to try to crack open their classroom and get a little bit of, uh, you know, agency back into education. And then I say also, we need parents to be demanding these kinds of experiences. They should be up in arms at, at um parent-teacher meetings, they should be, uh, I mean, no, you should never get angry at your teacher. They should be up in arms at the um, meetings where they're meeting with the administration because there's no research backing up more and more academic curriculum. All of the research is saying we need to be going in the other direction. And your fight, like administrations are on the wrong side of history now. And it's so clear that this sea change is going to happen and we're all going to wonder like what were we thinking back in the dark ages when everything was preparation for SAT tests starting in kindergarten. I am so looking forward (laughs) to that truly being the dark ages, uh, Gaver. Um, So I'm voting for that. You know, I want to thank you very much for making time in your day to share um, share your journey with us. And uh, we will make sure that we post um, on the show notes and on the resources that we send out with the episode, the ability um, to have some links and to, you know, to, to get in touch with Gaber. And I encourage all of our listeners to do so. So thank you so much so for your time today. To thank you, Annalise. Yeah. A wonderful chat with you. Yeah, yeah we appreciate it very much. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, 
learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.